Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 12th through Sunday the 15th feature guest conductor Jaap van Sweden and baritone Christian Gerhara. The program begins with the first Chicago Symphony Orchestra performances of music by Nina Schekar, Lumina, followed by songs from Des Knaben Wunderhorn, The Youth's Wonderhorn by Gustav Mahler, and after intermission, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Here are Philip Huscher's program notes on Nina Shekhar's Lumina, a work lasting about 11 minutes. Growing up in suburban Detroit as a child of parents who immigrated from India in the 1980s, Nina Shekhar stood apart from the color of her skin to the anxieties caused by undiagnosed obsessive-compulsive disorder. Her own nickname for herself Quirkhead would later become the title of a 2017 composition for soprano and string quartet. She has said that the music she writes is a hybrid, like the family meals when she was growing up, where Palak Panir sat on the same table with mashed potatoes. Shaker studied at the University of Michigan, where she earned dual degrees in music composition and chemical engineering. I loved how engineers think so differently than artists do, she said in an interview in 2021. As evidence of her own hybrid experience, she worked on research and development for Bounty Paper Towels as part of an internship with Procter & Gamble, where her own voice as a composer was coming into focus. Shaker then did graduate work at the University of Southern California Thornton School of Music, where Lumina was premiered by the school's Thornton Symphony in 2020. Lumina won her the ASCAP Rudolf Nissim Award and has since been performed in the United States and in Europe. She's currently a Ph.D. candidate in music composition at Princeton University. Composing is a way for me to express my identity, myself, and emotions in a way that I couldn't in engineering. She also performs as a flutist, pianist, and saxophonist. On her website, Shaker calls herself a composer and multimedia artist who explores the intersection of identity, vulnerability, love, and laughter. Lumina was partly inspired by Hindustani ragas. Shekhar says that traditional Hindustani performers often start by hovering over a note or two before moving upward to the full scale. Lumina follows this similar structure, also incorporating glissandi, pitch bends, and grace note patterns to mimic the traditional ornamentation, she says. I also incorporated significant use of microtonality to create dense clouds and contrast dark and bright scenes, mimicking light versus shadows. Shaker has called Lumina an exploration of the spectrum of light and dark, as well as the murkiness between. Using swift contrasts between bright, sharp timbres and cloudy textures and dense harmonies, the piece captures sudden bursts of radiance among the eeriness of shadows. Program notes by Philip Husher on Nina Shekar's Lumina. And now on to Gustav Mahler's songs from Des Knaben Wunderhorn, The Youth's Wonderhorn, the performance time for these songs, about 29 minutes. In 1806, the year Napoleon crushed the Prussian army at Jena, two young poets in Heidelberg, Achim von Arnim and Clemens von Brontano, close friends who would soon become brothers-in-law, published the first volume of Des Knaben Wunderhorn. A collection of old German folk poems, the title The Youth's Magic Horn comes from the first poem in the book, 
Des Knaben Wunderhorn reminded the German people of their great heritage at a time when the country desperately needed a strong sense of national identity. The collection, quickly followed by two more volumes, was dedicated to Germany's greatest living poet, Goethe, who correctly predicted that these simple texts would gradually be carried from ear to ear and from mouth to mouth, and that they would be returned to the people in the course of time, glorified and filled with new life. It wasn't long before some of Germany's greatest composers, including Karl Maria von Weber, Felix Mendelssohn, and Robert Schumann, set several of these poems to music, giving Des Knaben Wunderhorn a new life beyond even what Goethe envisioned. It was Weber's own worn copy of Des Knaben Wunderhorn that Gustav Mahler discovered one day many years later in the Leipzig home of the composer's grandson, Karl, with whose wife Marian Mahler had been carrying on a passionate affair. Mahler had known Des Knaben Wunderhorn since childhood, but the chance encounter with it that day in 1887 seems to have taken hold of him in a powerful way and suggested a new direction for his still young career as a composer. His love for Marian von Weber would soon fade, but for the next dozen years or so, Mahler wrote little that was not in some way inspired by Des Knaben Wunderhorn. Mahler began by setting nine Wunderhorn texts for voice and piano, a prelude, a kind of warm-up to the great outpouring of music that would soon follow. When he decided to set more Wunderhorn texts early in 1892, he composed them in versions for both piano and orchestra, leading him into largely unexplored territory because the orchestral song was a novelty at the time. Mahler's few models included Berlioz's cycle, Les Nuits d'été, Summer Nights, although these songs were conceived with piano and orchestrated much later. In fact, Mahler recognized that these works were so individual that he didn't even know what to call them at first. His original choice was not song, but humoresque. Mahler's main output during his Wunderhorn years included three enormous revolutionary symphonies, his second, third, and fourth, each containing a single Wunderhorn song and 12 independent settings of poems from Des Knappen Wunderhorn. Not even the briefest of the songs was less important to Mahler than his grandest symphony. In fact, all these pieces, the songs and the various symphonic movements, were so inextricably linked in his mind at the time that they form one great magnum opus, a large extended family of relatives, some close and others more distant. From 1892 until 1901, the most concentrated period of Wunderhorn composition, Mahler's drafting of symphonies and songs was interwoven in a way unprecedented in music. In 1892, Mahler composed his first four orchestral songs on Wunderhorn texts. The following year, when he established the routine of composing only during his summer holiday, he wrote three more songs and began work on his second symphony, a score that itself would ultimately include one Wunderhorn song as its fourth movement and a scherzo based on yet another. And so it went, year after year, as the trilogy of so-called Wunderhorn symphonies, each of which included a song as one of its movements, and the collection of orchestral Wunderhorn songs was gradually compiled. As Mahler worked simultaneously on these two oddly matched genres, each form benefited and learned from the other. The songs took on a nearly symphonic stature, while the symphonies borrowed ideas from neighboring songs. 
Mahler finished the last of the symphonies, the fourth in G major, in 1900, and then wrote one final song, Der Tamburgsel, the following summer, just three months before he met Alma Schindler. By 1902, the year he and Alma married and had their first child, the Wunderhorn chapter was closed for good, ending as abruptly as it had begun. Mahler clearly never thought of these songs written over the span of a decade as a cycle, a strictly ordered whole, despite their close relationship. He invited singers to pick and choose from the collection to perform songs in keys that suited them and in whatever order they wished. I ask at the very least that you determine the sequence of the songs yourself, he wrote to the baritone Johannes Meschart in 1906. Not all of the songs are suited to the same voice, and Mahler expected that some would be sung by men, others by women. The recent fashion of performing the dialogue songs with two singers, each taking a part of a different character, was never sanctioned by the composer. The homespun Wunderhorn texts seem to have unlocked Mahler's imagination in ways that more complex, sophisticated poetry could not. As he told Ida Demel, the wife of poet Richard Demel, these poems were not complete in themselves, but blocks of marble waiting to be perfected. In fact, Mahler freely adapted the text to suit his needs before he wrote a note of music, much as Armin and Brantano had improved the folk poetry they published. With songs, he once explained to Natalie Bauerlechner, you can express so much more in the music than the words directly say. The text is actually a mere indication of the deeper significance to be extracted from it, of concealed treasure. Each of the Wunderhorn songs is a symphonic miniature, more closely related in scope and scale to movements from symphonies than to art songs. The orchestral writing is sharp and graphic throughout, a wondrously apt response to each line of text, even though Mahler later admitted to Anton Webern that he didn't understand everything in the poems. The orchestra that Mahler calls for is never large, the instrumentation varies from song to song, and it is always used like a chamber ensemble, each strand composed and indispensable. When Mahler conducted the first performances, he intentionally chose small halls and modest-sized ensembles. This week's performances include one Wunderhorn setting better known as a symphonic movement, the hymn-like Orlicht. Although it was first conceived as an independent song and only later incorporated into the second symphony as the prelude to its finale. The last two Wunderhorn songs that Mahler composed are among his most powerful creations. Mahler loved to tell his friends how the inspiration for Revega came to him while he was sitting on the toilet and that he emerged with the song completely sketched in his head, a typical Mahler tale in its merger of the everyday and the sublime. Whatever its origin, Revelga is a magnificent achievement driven by a fierce and obsessive rage, and the day he finished orchestrating it, Mahler said it was the most successful and important of all his songs. He composed Der Tamburzel while resting by a stream one day after lunch. He was surprised to discover later that the music perfectly fit the poem he had only half remembered. It is the last of the Wunderhorn songs written the fateful summer he began the Kentertotenlieder, with which it shares the same horrible pain exposed for all to experience like a raw nerve. It hurt one to write them, he said at the time, and I grieve for the world, which will one day have to hear them, so sad is their content. 
Whatever the subject, from the seemingly trivial to life's darkest sorrows, Mahler made something deeply personal of each song, elevating plain folk material to the realm of art, turning humble vignettes into unsettling revelations. In the end, Mahler brilliantly realized Goethe's own sense of wonder on first reading the Wunderhorn poems that a limited situation reveals a particular happening to be part of an infinite whole, so that we believe that in that small space we are looking at the whole world. Program notes by Philip Huscher on songs from Gustav Mahler's Des Knaben Wunderhorn. And now on to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. The work lasts about 36 minutes. This is the symphony that, along with an image of Beethoven agitated and disheveled, has come to represent greatness in music. Perhaps we are speaking only of the very opening seconds, just as we may remember vividly and accurately no more than the Mona Lisa's smile or the first ten words of Hamlet's soliloquy. It's hard to know how so few notes, so plainly strung together, could become so popular. There are certainly those who would argue that this isn't even Beethoven's greatest symphony, just as the Mona Lisa isn't Leonardo's finest painting. Beethoven himself preferred his Eroica to the Fifth Symphony. And yet, it's hardly famous beyond its merits, because one can't easily think of another single composition that, in its expressive range and structural power, better represents what music is all about. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony has spoken forcefully and directly to many listeners, trained and untrained, over the years. We each listen and understand in our own way. We can probably find ourselves somewhere here among the characters of E.M. Forster's Howard's End. Whether you are like Mrs. Munt and tap surreptitiously when the tunes come, of course not so as to disturb the others, or like Helen, who can see heroes and shipwrecks in the music's flood, or like Margaret, who can only see the music, or like Tibby, who is profoundly versed in counterpoint and holds the full score open on his knee, or like their cousin, Fräulein Mosbach, who remembers all the time that Beethoven is echt Deutsch, or like Fräulein Mosbach's young man, who can remember nothing but Fräulein Mosbach. In any case, the passion of your life becomes more vivid, and you are bound to admit that such a noise is cheap at two shillings. And that is why we still go to concerts, although two shillings will no longer buy Mrs. Munt's seat, and whether we see shipwrecks or dominant sevenths, we may well agree, while caught up in a captivating performance, that Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is the most sublime noise that has ever penetrated into the ear of man. For a while, it was somewhat overshadowed by the Ninth Symphony, which seemed to point the way to the rest of the 19th century and embolden generations of composers to think differently of the symphony or of music in general. But the Fifth has never really lost its appeal. Robert Schumann, whose musical predictions have often come true, wrote that, this symphony invariably wields its power over men of every age like those great phenomena of nature. This symphony, too, will be heard in future centuries, nay, as long as music and the world exist. A familiarity that only a handful of pieces in any century earn has largely blunted much of the work's wild power for our ears. 
and knowledge of the many works that couldn't have been written without this as their example has blinded us to the novelty of Beethoven's boldest strokes, the cross-reference between the famous opening and the fortissimo horn call in the scherzo, the way the scherzo passes directly and dramatically into the finale, and the memory of the scherzo that appears unexpectedly in the finale, all forging the four movements of the symphony into one unified design. There's no way to know what the first audience thought. For one thing, that concert given at the Theater an der Wien on December 22, 1808, was so inordinately long, even by 19th century standards, and jammed with so much important new music that no one could truly have taken it all in. J. F. Reichardt, who shared a box with Prince Lopkowitz, later wrote, there we sat from 6.30 till 10.30 in the most bitter cold and found by experience that one might have too much, even of a good thing. Reichardt and Lopkowitz stayed till the end, their patience frequently tried not by the music, to which these two brought more understanding than most, but by the performance, which was rough and unsympathetic. Surely some in the audience that night were bowled over by what they heard, though many may well have fidgeted and daydreamed, uncomprehending, or perhaps even bored. Beethoven's was not yet the most popular music ever written, and even as great a figure as Goethe would outlive Beethoven without coming to terms with the one composer who was clearly his equal. As late as 1830, Mendelssohn tried one last time to interest the aging poet in Beethoven's music, enthusiastically playing the first movement of the Fifth Symphony at the piano. But... That does not move one, Goethe responded. It is merely astounding, grandiose. Take the celebrated opening, which Beethoven once in a moment he surely regretted, likened to fate knocking at the door. It is bold and simple, and thus, like many of the mottos of our civilization, susceptible to all manner of popular treatments, none of which can diminish the power of the original. Beethoven writes eight notes, four plus four, the first ta-ta-ta-tum, falling down from G to E-flat, the second from F to D. For all the force of those hammer strokes, we may be surprised that only strings and clarinets play them. Hearing those eight notes and no more, we can't yet say for certain whether this is E-flat major or C minor. As soon as Beethoven continues... We hear that urgent knocking as part of a grim and driven music in C minor. But when the exposition is repeated and we start over from the top with E-flat major chords still ringing in our ears, those same ta-ta-ta-tum patterns sound like they belong to E-flat major. That ambiguity and tension are at the heart of this furious music, just as the struggle to break from C minor, where this movement settles, into the brilliance of C major, and it will carry us to the end of the symphony. If one understands and remembers those four measures, much of what happens during the next thirty-odd minutes will seem both familiar and logical. We can hear fate knocking at the door of nearly every measure of the first movement. The forceful horn call that introduces the second theme, for example, mimics both the rhythm and the shape of the symphony's opening. We can also notice the similarity to the beginning of the fourth piano concerto, and in fact, ideas for both works can be found in the same sketchbooks, those rich hunting grounds where brilliance often emerges in flashes from a disarray matched only by the notorious condition of the composer's lodgings. 
Although the first movement is launched with the energy and urgency of those first notes, its progress is stalled periodically by echoes of the two long-held notes in the first bars. In the recapitulation, a tiny but enormously expressive oboe cadenza completely freezes the action. The extensive coda is particularly satisfying, not because it effectively concludes a dramatic and powerful movement, but because it uncovers still new depths of drama and power at a point when that seems unthinkable. The Andante con Molto is a distant relative of the theme and variations that often turn up as slow movements in classical symphonies. But unlike the conventional type, it presents two different themes, varies them separately, and then trails off into a free improvisation that covers a wide range of thoughts, each springing almost spontaneously from the last. The sequence of events is so unpredictable and the meditative tone so seductive that in the least assertive movement of the symphony, Beethoven commands our attention to the final sentence. Beethoven was the first to notice his scherzo's resemblance to the opening of the finale of Mozart's great G minor symphony. He even wrote out Mozart's first measures on a page of sketches for this music. But while the effect there is decisive and triumphant, here it is clouded with half-uttered questions. Beethoven begins with furtive music, inching forward in the low strings, then stumbling on the horns who let loose their own rendition of Fate at the Door. At some point, when Beethoven realized that the scherzo was part of a bigger scheme, he decided to leave it unfinished and move directly through one of the most famous passages in music, slowly building intention and drama over the ominous, quiet pounding of the timpani to an explosion of brilliant C major. Composers have struggled ever since to match the effect, not just of binding movements together, that much has been successfully copied, but of emerging so much dramatically from darkness to light. The sketchbooks tell us that these 50 measures cost Beethoven considerable effort, and most surprisingly that they weren't even part of the original plan. Berlioz thought this transition so stunning that it would be impossible to surpass it in what follows. Beethoven, perfectly understanding the challenge and also that of sustaining the victory of C major once it has been achieved, adds trombones, used in symphonic music for the first time, the piccolo and the contrabassoon to the first burst of C major and moves forward towards his final stroke of genius. That moment comes amidst general rejoicing when the ghost of the scherzo quietly appears, at once disrupting C major with unexpected memories of C minor and leaving everyone temporarily hushed and shaken. Beethoven quickly restores order and the music begins again as if nothing has happened. But Beethoven still finds it necessary to end with 54 measures of the purest C major to resolve any lingering doubts and to remind us of the conquest, not the struggle. Program notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Symphony No. 5. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening. 